Real talk, I am super nervous to interview the guest that we have on today. That is Dr. Leonard Woodell. And I'm very rarely nervous to interview because the guests do the heavy lifting. But today, this is a globally sought after thoracic surgeon and speaker who is also a, uh, an adjunct professor at several universities and saves a lot of lives and is the head of the thoracic surgery, I guess, department or division. I don't know words in the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the most anyway, uh, helps to know important people is how I got him on. But I'm real nervous. I'm probably going to sound like it. And yeah, I'm brand new at, at interviewing. <laughs> Oh, hi, you're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all of the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. I'd like to welcome our guest, medical doctor specializing in general thoracic surgery, currently practicing at the prestigious Cleveland Clinic in the great state of Ohio, Dr. Jim Waddell. Did everyone notice how I slowed down? It's because these are really big words that I'm not used to saying. Dr. Waddell received his medical degree from East Tennessee State University, completed his residency at Vanderbilt University in both internal medicine and general surgery, then had a fellow at, at University of Michigan in thoracic surgery. Dr. Waddell has been in practice for more than 15 years and went to school for 584 years before then. So if you want to learn how to live forever, this is your guy. I better know Dr. Waddell from running across soccer fields for most of my young life with his lovely wife, who's one of my closest friends, Ashley. What up, Ashley? And since bothering her to ask him questions about weird medical stuff or just bothering him in general. That said, Dr. Waddell, tell us what made you want to practice medicine, how many people ask you for medical advice as soon as they hear you're a doctor. Do you ever wish you had studied something else? Just tell us all of it. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. You know, I, I don't really know how I landed in medicine. Like most people, I think going through college, I wandered a lot, thinking one day I was going to be a lawyer, and one day I was going to be a business person, and one day I was going to be an architect, and one day I was going to be a doctor. And and I think it, it just, as time went on, it was more of a process of elimination than it was anything else. And I, I almost fell into this. I actually when I was graduating, had been accepted to law school and was very, very close to taking on that career field. And then I realized I hate to read. So for somebody who has to spend their entire life reading and writing, I didn't think that was the greatest man. <laughs> so I wound up in medicine. It was a little more circuitous than that, actually, because you know I had had a falling out with my dad and uh, it, it all had to do with, you know, the typical college things. I got into a college relationship, and that was really more important to me at the time than studying <laughs> and had a really bad semester, really bad, like below 2.0. And, um, you know, for someone who wanted to be a professional, that wasn't good. And my father was furious with me, actually threw me out of the house, put a hundred bucks in my pocket and gave me a car and threw me out of the house. 
And so I wound up living out of my car and then with my girlfriend in an apartment and getting into the service industry to support myself to go through college and then medical school uh, for training. So um, it's not as straightforward. My path is not as straightforward as most most people work. That's so, I mean, I have 6,000 questions, but that's so interesting that literally what got you into medicine was not wanting to read. Like I just, that's the first time I think that may have ever been said in the history of the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you have, uh, it's a circuitous route to get to medicine, but what I guess, what would have held up, was it because of the esteem of those two professions of law and medicine or was it that you just knew, well, listen, I'm smart enough to take on one of these two incredibly difficult things? Because I feel like, you know, if I had a bad semester, which I had a couple, I might be like, well, guess I'm going to do nothing hard. I mean, I just I can't imagine like what what made you pick between those two really difficult things? My mother is Greek. Her, her parents were first generation immigrants from Greece. And for that culture... It's all about males and profession and prestige. My mother actually was a lawyer. Um, She got her law degree in the 50s from the University of South Dakota. Never practiced, actually. When she had kids, she wound up being a school teacher and never practiced, regretted it the rest of her life. And so there's this constant pressure from my mother to say, you're going to be a profession. Whether you like it or not, you're going to be a professional. So for me, I had two choices. It was it was the law or it was going to be medicine uh, right out of the gate. I mean, she would have nothing less than that. Was that frustrating? Oh, yeah, very much so. Because I would, it was really frustrating when I was in college because all of my buddies who were in the business school were out drinking beer, <laughs> playing volleyball during finals. <laughs> And I was sitting there playing with Tinker Toys, trying to build organic <laughs> chemistry models oh. to try to figure out what this test was going to be all about. It was terribly frustrating. And so because of that pressure, did you at any point want to quit? Oh, yeah, many times. I think, uh, you know, I mean, there were just so many times. I remember sitting in the library on Fridays. You know, I, I'm not naturally gifted in terms of my intelligence quotient, uh, quotient. Um, I, I have to work hard for my grades and I have to work hard when I study. And if I don't, then the result is I fail a test. Um, <laughs> just naturally not good at it. And so, you know, I used to sit there in the library on Fridays and I'd be the only guy there, right? The whole floor would be empty. And here I would be with my four inch, five inch thick textbooks all scattered all over the desk. And all these people would run by, smashing on the windows, calling me names. You know, what a loser. It's Friday night. What are you doing in the library? All of this kind of nonsense. And and at that point, you're just like, geez, I don't, what, what am I, you know, really, what am I missing? What am I losing out here on having to put all of this effort in on the front end? And it seems like it's endless, right? I mean, you do college and then you do medical school, and then you have to do clinical residency, and then you have to do some specialty training, and then you get to start as an entry-level position in some field of medicine. So it is the ultimate delayed gratification. I mean, years and years of putting forth effort. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was for me, it was 14 years of training before actually being independent and working as a as a physician in my specialty. Now, I want to ask because I would imagine and again, I have zero don't come for me audience. I know nothing about medicine. Please leave me alone. But I if I were in a position where God bless my parents, they didn't push me to do one particular thing. But if I were in a position where I had to do medicine, I would want to in no way want anything to do in the OR. I wouldn't want anything with surgery because talk about the most high pressure medical situation. I cannot, I mean, was that just a, I'm doing it because I can, or at some point did you become interested in surgery during medical school? Like what pushed you there? Yeah. So I actually, my training is a little bit also unique. Most people don't certify in three or four specialties. Most people have their one certification and then practice in that field. So I started in internal medicine thinking my specialty was going to be cardiology. Well, I'll do my internal medicine and then do my cardiology fellowship and then be a cardiologist and put catheters in people and diagnose and treat heart disease all day long. And um, where I trained at Vanderbilt, it's a very, very, very busy heart center. And this was a 24-hour thing. It never stops, right? I mean, all these heart attacks and all these people come rolling in the emergency room at all hours of the day, especially, it seems, from 12 midnight to 6 a.m. <laughs> and so, you know, what I was noticing is that these guys were working hard. I mean, they were working really hard all day long, all night long in the procedure lab catheterization. But what frustrated me about that was they could only go so far. So they could diagnose the heart disease. And they could put a stent in or temporize it. But if it was really severe, they had to call the heart surgeon. They had to call the CT surgeon. And and that was kind of where the buck stopped. There wasn't anything past that. That's it. And then I was thinking to myself, well, geez, you know, maybe I want to be that guy. Maybe I want to be the guy where this is the end game. This is where you stop because you can't go any farther than this guy. And, and during that process, I, or during that time is when I made that decision that, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going all the way. I'm going to carry this out until the very end. Now, because of that attraction in the, in the um, trajectory of, I guess, chain of command, did you then want to stay practicing and not necessarily go to the OR, but be able to be a resource in that situation of, hey, you don't have to call anyone else. I'm, I get it. Or was the was it as soon as you got that specialized training, you were then going to have to move to the OR? Yeah, you have to. So, you know, there's a certain gratification with the operating room. It's it's a, a very cause and effect relationship. You go, you have a job to do. It's a technical exercise. And if you're successful with the technical technical exercise, provided there isn't some unforeseen event in the operating room, then you're done. You move on. You do another technical exercise. And I like that. I like the fact that, you you know, each one is a little bit different, although along the same thing, and that you're charged with getting from point A to point B in uh, the most efficient fashion possible. And then you can see immediately the results of your work. It's not like you're treating a chronic condition like diabetes, for example, where you have someone who has diabetes and you say, well, go take this medicine and chart your sugar numbers and then we'll make fine adjustments and get this into the range of where it should be over the course 
of the next few months. This is a, I'm having a heart attack. If somebody doesn't help me, I'm going to die. And I'm going to go and I'll be the person to intervene in that and fix that and make sure that that doesn't happen. Does that, so I have, I'm trying to write down all of my questions because I have a hundred. I want to go back really quickly, but uh, before we do, before we go back, uh, so have you, for some of your patients, then do you do follow-up care or are you, you do triage and then you don't see them again? Yeah. So it's very limited. The surgeon's role is limited to that event. So if it's a heart attack, for example, and the patient requires a coronary bypass operation, then the patient is cared for in the hospital for the post-operative care. They're discharged and they're usually seen once afterwards for your follow-up care. And then the patient is seen for long-term care by his internal medicine doctors, family practice doctors, cardiologists, pulmonary doctors, whomever is charged with the general health maintenance of the patient. Have you ever done surgery, uh, heart surgery on the same person, like m- multiple times? No. That's a good thing. Um, no. Most of the, the types of surgery that we do in the chest are kind of one and done. I mean, there are patients that require redo operations, for example, if valves fail years and years and years, if bypass grafts occlude, if lung cancer recurs, but most of these are not multiple operations on the same person. Okay. And so just going back, so in, you had mentioned how difficult school was and how you were the person there on Friday nights in the library. At any point in your 612 years of study, did it ever get easier? Was there ever a moment where you were like, it clicked and now I'm sort of in my groove or has it always been an uphill climb? No, it, well, it changes. You know, the first part of this with with being uh, in college, it's all book work. And then the first part of medical school, when I went to medical school, and it's changing now, the first half of medical school, the first two years were heavy book work. And then it changes to clinical rotations where it's applied knowledge, where it's taking the basics that you've learned and then you're applying that and becoming problem solver and someone who understands how to take in all of the information, consolidate it, and then work through multiple possibilities to come up with a treatment plan that's appropriate. So it shifts. So I found that when I got into the clinical part, that it was much easier to apply uh, the basic science knowledge. Okay. So, and do you feel like, like, do you still get nervous before surgeries or did you ever get nervous or was it just like, nope, this is what I do and I'm... Well, yeah, it's an intimidating environment. The operating room is a very intimidating environment, (laughs) especially for people who don't frequent it, right? I mean, if you've never been there before or if you've only been there a few times, I mean, we've had medical students (laughs) standing there and all of a sudden thunk, right? You're not paying attention. You hear something and they're passed out on the floor. Or worse, when they fall asleep, when they're holding some retractor or something uh, happens in the operating room and they're not, you've lost their attention span and they fall asleep during the operation. Um, That's always frustrating. But it's a really intimidating environment because it's not what people think it is. It's not what you see on television. There's always a lot of activity there. You know, there's one or two or three anesthesia personnel at the top of the bed monitoring and taking care of the patient. The surgical field is crowded. It's the the attending surgeon, often a training surgeon, often a physician assistant, often a medical student, plus a scrub nurse that's five people at the bedside. There's a circulating nurse that's running around. 
in the operating room as well to gather equipment, to do whatever it is that needs to be done, call the patient's family, chart in the chart. So it's this very busy environment. It's incredibly bright with all of the LED lights that we have. And usually there's some kind of music going on in the background. Really? Uh, Oh, yeah, always. You know, surgeon's choice, circulator's choice, whatever. You know, Sirius XM or, or pick a station. And so that combined with the sound of the machines that we're using, the sounds of the life support machines that the anesthesia people are using, it's an incredibly loud and bright and busy environment. Mm. And so, um, and, and you can't, unless you're walking in at the very beginning of an operation where the patient's being prepared, the only thing you see in the surgical field is a square that's been draped off by sterile towels and sterile paper gowns and, and accoutrements. So the only thing that you see is something about two feet by three feet in a square. You don't see anything else. Uh, okay, so two, uh, what's the longest surgery time, like the longest amount of time you've been on your feet operating in a given time? 26 hours. Holy shit. How did you stay awake and constantly, at, at any point did you have coffee? Like, how did you do that? Yeah, you can take a little bit of a break. So most of the time, there's some point that's not critical where you can say, hey, everybody just freeze for a minute. I'm going to go to the bathroom. <laughs> So there are those points in, in an operation when you can do that. Uh, there are hours and hours, uh, depending on the operation, that you can't do that. And, and then, so 26 hours is my, is my longest time consecutively in the operating room on one operation. But it, it wasn't uncommon in training where I would go three days um, before. Someone was open for three days? like No, multiple operations back to back to back before you could stop for three days. Was that residency or was that you? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that's just because they're trying to beat it out of you? No, it's because they were that busy or you had emergencies and, um, and, and that was your job to learn and to assist. Um, you know, things have changed, right? I mean, the, the residency rules now say that you can't do that any longer, that it would, the Libby Zion case in New York that changed a lot of the rules for residency and how long we can work consecutively as trainees is now regulated by the federal government. But at that time, those weren't in existence. So it was, you work until you're done. Wow. And I apologize. You said the Libby Zion case. Was this a case of someone passing away as a result of someone being awake? It was. It was a young girl in New York City who had an unfortunate outcome and the case was litigated. And it turned out to show that the people that were caring for her were trainees, a number of them trainees, and a number of them were in that situation where they had been working for extended periods of time. And so the question became, is that safe? Can you make good, sound medical judgments? And can you provide at least the basic standard of a care or what's expected, which is excellence in care after working those long periods of time? And the courts determined that that wasn't a safe thing to do. Good Lord. Okay. So then what is it like tag out a surgeon now? Is, is that the new standard? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, if I had done this during my training, they would have fired me, but it's, it's not uncommon that a resident will just say, time's up. I got to go. And uh, determ- self-determined amount of time. I've just like, I've been in there for 10 it's hours. Predetermined. There, there are rules. We all know what they are. And then, you know, it's up to the resident to keep track of that timing. But yeah, I've had people 
tell me, hey, I have to go to the birthday party. I'm leaving. In the middle of a surgery? Oh, yep. have you, uh, do you get frustrated with that? Well, I just, it's a different culture, right? Uh, it, it's not something that I could have ever done. If I had done that, they would have fired me on the spot. They would have said, you're done, goodbye. But the culture's changed. Now we, we have to be accepting of that. Jeez. Have you ever- it, now, now, those rules don't apply to me or to other attending physicians, right? If you're an attending physician, there is no tagging out of an operation. There's nobody to do that. You're responsible. So in some ways, they're doing a disservice to the up-and-coming medical doctors by not getting them used to the practice of being op- in an operating room for 26 hours straight. You know, that's- yeah, maybe, maybe. I, I guess you could argue that either way. I think, but 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 they may be faced with that and have never experienced that. Yeah. Um, you know, I it, you know we get the chance in an academic environment, both here where I'm at currently and previously when I was at Wake Forest training people you get the opportunity to associate with other people who are in the academic field and other people who are training. And there's all kinds of different varying opinions about how we should be training and what the drawbacks are here and what drawbacks are there. And, you know, the inside joke was, you know, what the problem is when you're off, well, you're missing all those cases. (laughs) And, and, and there's some truth to that. There, there is some, you know, frequency and exposure and things like that. But, but when is it too extreme? I, I, I don't know. I'm not the person to make that determination about, you know, when is when is enough enough. Sure. Have you ever been frustrated enough on the surgery floor in the OR where you've yelled or like like a? Oh yeah. Okay. What what's an example of like a? Oh yeah, absolutely. I you know we so a surgeon has what's called a pick list or a card, and this is a listing of all the instruments that the surgeon uses all the equipment that's required for the operating room, you know, disposable equipment like stapling guns, suture, things like that. And so when we schedule an operation, then the the nursing staff and the OR staff looks at what's been scheduled and then they pull the instruments, they pull the trays, they pull all the things that you need for the operation. And for me, there's nothing more frustrating than when they're not prepared. I mean, we know what this has been scheduled for two weeks. The patient's here and, and we're not prepared. We don't have the instruments. We don't have the equipment. You know, people are running around in the middle of an operation because they didn't bother to check that the hospital is out of something. It hasn't been ordered. It's been back ordered. It hasn't been replaced. It hasn't been cleaned. It hasn't been, you know, there are a, a gazillion different excuses as to why we don't have anything. But there have been, it doesn't happen often, but there have been times where you get a series of these things going all at one time. And then all of a sudden you're standing there and you, and it's 30 minutes and you're stuck. You're standing there. You can't proceed because you don't have what you need. Everybody's running around. It looks like the Keystone Cops where they're all tripping over each other in the back of the operating room. And you're scrubbed and standing there and you're like, what the hell is going on? I mean, what do you do in that case? I pace a lot and I don't want to say too much and just kind of encourage them to please move forward and get what we need to get. We have a, an anesthetized patient in the operating room and we're burning time. And is it, is there a danger with keeping them under for a certain, like is absolutely there is. Yep. yep. More is not better. Why? Well, there are effects of the anesthetic. There are effects of all the chemicals that we're putting through them. There's effects of the mechanical ventilation that we're putting them through to, to oxygenate them and ventilate their bodies and 
And all of this is detrimental. You can't do this indefinitely. Yeah, faster is better. Okay. And has have you ever have you ever caught something whilst you were in the middle of a surgery that you didn't know going in was seen something else in the heart or caught yeah, the- all, all the time, all the time. You know, when we when we consult patients for operations, we tell them, uh, you know, this is the intent. This is what we're going to do. A B C D E. This is the consent form you're you're signing. However, things happen that we don't expect. Whether that be something during the conduct of the operation, whether that be a finding that we don't anticipate. And we ask them for blanket coverage to say, we need to address this. That if we find that this is a uh, serious thing, this is something that could impact your health, that we need to address this at the same time and need your permission to be able to do that. That you may not find out about it until after the operation. Have you ever had a patient say, nope, you can only do the thing that... that, that uh, yes. Really? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, uh, yes. So if you found something, say you found a blockage or whatever, and they only consented to this one stint or this one thing, you yeah. only do that one thing? You only do the one thing. You can only do what they give you permission to do. Why do you think people would say no to that? Like say no to the fixing while you're in there? I don't know. You know, I mean, it's the same reason why people don't take vaccines or the same reason why, you know... I mean, you know, pick a pick a reason, you know, whether they've read something on the Internet, whether there's some personal belief, whether there's some urban legend, whether there's some level of losing control mm. in the situation, which, of course, a patient does when they go in into the operating room. They have no control over anything, whether it's urban. I, I don't know. I have no idea. But there are people that say you can only do to whatever level and then have to stop. And because of, you know, how overly litigious our society is, do you just, you don't, I assume you don't even try and talk to them about, well, if something's, you'll just say, okay, great, fine. We'll only do that one thing. Yeah. I think, you know, you can all, my job is just to offer patient advice and, and treatment options. Ultimately they're in charge of who they are and what they are and what they want. And they have to make a good decision. So my job is to inform them so they can make those decisions for themselves. Does it frustrate you? Sometimes. I mean, sometimes you want to do more. I think, you know, what's more frustrating is not being able to do something. So you intend to go in and take out a lung cancer and then find out you're too late. That that this lung cancer is not what you thought it was, that you put a camera in and it's everywhere. And then you, that's that's more frustrating is to say, I I am now, I've been knocked out of the game instantly. There's nothing I can do to help this patient. And have, are you the one that has to deliver that information to the family? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Dr. Waddell. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately the patient, because they're, they're asleep, and by the time they've recovered from the anesthesia, it's hours later. So you have a grieving family oh. who can't hide their emotions. Most of the time, I'm, I've been hauled in to do something else, so I'm busy and can't stand by the bedside to wait for the patient to be fully aware. So I have to be called to see the patient afterwards. And, and the scene is usually you walk into the patient's room, the family is there, they're crying, the patient doesn't fully understand um, what's happening, they're anxious, nervous, scared. And so then you have to kind of ring everybody in and get them all on the same page and 
help, hopefully get them to understand what the situation is. And the problem with that is the minute they hear the word cancer, they don't hear anything else. So all of it goes right out the window. So it's multiple discussions with them and the family to understand the gravity of the situation. Have you ever had anyone freak out on you when you present that information? Oh, yeah, all the time. And like attack you personally, whether it be Um, verbally or whatever. Yeah, no, not usually. Usually that comes later. So we talk about the customer service aspects of healthcare, right? And, you know, in, in one humble person's opinion, and this is a generalized statement, it doesn't apply to any particular hospital or any particular practice because it's all different across the country. I mean, we have small, little rural hospitals. We have private practice settings. We have academic settings. We have monstrous hospitals that have everything available to them. And then we have the exact opposite. But I, I think overall, we do kind of a terrible job at customer service. Uh, you know, I think we're, we're focused on the patient and we're focused on a disease process. We're not focused on the person here. So the short answer to your question is, do they come back at you? Yes. And they come back, you come back at you for the delay and the time that it took to get to that point. So, you know, most of the lung cancer that we find in the United States is incidental. It's by accident. Someone goes in and gets a chest x-ray and they find a nodule. Lung cancer screening is relatively new, only within the last few years. Although there was a big study published in 2011, it took the federal government more than five years to approve funding for lung cancer screening. Initially, they said no. It was appealed and they finally agreed to it. Then the the buy-in from everyone in the medical community has been slow to incorporate lung cancer screening into their practices. And so that's where the problem comes is that you'll find someone who has an incidental lung nodule. Well, then they get a CAT scan. That takes a couple of days to schedule. And that confirms that there's a nodule there. Well, then they get sent to the pulmonary doctor. That's a couple of weeks to get the pulmonary doctor appointment. So the pulmonary doctor looks at it and says, we probably need a biopsy and we need to do some testing to find out how strong the lungs are and, and what you'll qualify for. Well, there's a few more weeks that go down the line for that to happen. And then eventually they get sent to me and it's been eight weeks, three months since this has started. And you're dealing with cancer. It's alive, it grows and it spreads. And so time becomes a very valuable asset or an enemy, depending on which side you're standing on. And so that's when it comes back, when the patients say, well, why did it take three months for me to get to see you? And then an additional two or three weeks to get your schedule for the operating. So now we're four months down the road. Why, 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 why did it take this long to get all these tests, to see all the right doctors? You know, why haven't we expedited all of this? Why haven't we made this easier? You know, and I don't have an explanation. We, we need people who are in supply chain to come in and look at the way that we administer medical care in the United States. Going to an office and seeing a doctor, getting sent for tests, not usually at one location, it's scattered all over the place. Go to this place for a test, go to another place for another test, go to a third place for a third test, and then come back and see the doctor again for the results and talk about that. And then you gotta be sent somewhere else. 
and then you got to see somebody else. And so there's, it's very disrespectful to the person because the people that schedule all this have no regard for their schedule, the person's schedule at all, whether they have to take time off of work, um, whether they're available to do it and maybe not. So it gets pushed back later. Do we do this stuff on the weekends? No, we don't because it costs too much money and we don't want to employ people and pay them to work on Saturday and Sunday when it might be convenient for a patient to have all this done. Do we centralize this? No, we don't. We put it all over the place. And so, you know, we just don't do a very good job with customer service for medicine. Do you think some of that is related to insurance companies and their hand in medicine? Or what, what do you think the like crux of the issue is? Oh, I, I, there's, oh, it's so complex. Uh, this is, this is a, uh, this is a quagmire. Um, mm-hmm. And we can sink really fast here in this and go under quickly. There are just so many factors here about competing health systems, about insurance plans that direct patients in one way or another. Um, insurance denials for testing. You know, I, I, I've had insurance companies deny necessary preoperative tests with a diagnosis of cancer. And, and we argue, you know, that, that then there's two days, right? To schedule a phone call with a medical director at an insurance company who says to me, well, you can't have this test until you get a chest x-ray. But it's just like, why do I need a chest x-ray? I don't need a chest x-ray. I need the advanced testing. I know there's something there already, but I don't need this. I don't need to do this prerequisite and charge the patient another $90 to get a chest x-ray. So there's all of that. It's the availability. It's kind of where you are in the region uh, and who offers what. So it's a really, you know, who refers to who, right? Because you see a doctor doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the best person for whatever your problem is, right? Because of competing health systems and things like that. So, so it's a, it's a big plate of spaghetti. Does that ever make you feel hopeless? Not helpless, but frustrated. I mean, you really want to be able to give everybody the best care you possibly can. And that's not to say, for example, that I'm the best at what I do. I think I am. Uh, but but it's frustrating to, to see, especially when people come and see you for second opinions or have had something done and you're just kind of scratching your heads and you just can't figure out why this happened this way, what happened. That would be, uh, I just, uh, the, the ultimate customer service of just answering to so many people and having so many people weigh in on this thing that you went to a thousand years of school for and having someone else at a company or a family or whomever just telling you how to do your job. I would be beyond all the time. <laughs> like I would just be telling everybody to shut up forever. I'd be fired so fast. There'd be no way I could <laughs> shut up. No, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's because we've grown up in the culture and we're used to it. You know, there, there's no question there have to be checks and balances on things that, you know, none of us should have free reign to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. Um, there has to be, you know, standard care and reason, but you know, some of it gets to be a little bit absurd. Yeah. Okay, well, I wanted to spend a lot of time on the intro because I find what you do fascinating. Oh, before we jump on to the next section with all the questions, could you explain what thoracic surgery is? Because your lovely yeah. wife had to explain this to me three times and I yeah, still don't no, totally no understand problem. it. So, yeah, so 
cardiothoracic surgery is a discipline that applies surgical therapy to the chest. Over the course of the last 20 years, the specialty has really split, as most people have in their specialties, because we've realized that you can't really be good at everything, that you really have to focus on one field and do that over and over and over again to get the experience to be an expert. So it's split. So now it's cardiac surgery or cardiovascular surgery, which is the heart and the great vessels in the chest. And there's general thoracic surgery, which is basically everything else. So it's the lungs, it's the chest wall, it's the diaphragm, it's the esophagus, it's the middle of the chest called the mediastinum. So a general thoracic surgery, more than 80% of their practice is cancer, whether that be lung, esophagus, mediastinal cancer, diaphragm problems, whereas the cardiovascular is limited to just the heart. Cool. I hope the audience understands. I still don't. <laughs> no, it's not your fault. All right. I hope you enjoyed Just your about the chest and the heart and then everything else in the chest. It's cool. That's pretty much how, you know. Glad you're doing what you're doing and I'm doing this. Hope you yeah, all enjoyed your abs. We're going to move on to the entrees after a quick break. Yeah. We are back. And now we've moved on to the entrees. Okay, that was just the apps, folks. We're on to the main course. All right. So I didn't just ask Dr. Waddell to be on the podcast because I have connects and know people in high places like himself. No, it's because of his customer service experience, including what he currently does, which he also, he referenced some jobs early on. So, okay. What was your first job ever where the government was taking taxes out of your money? Uh, it was in high school. Okay. I was a radio announcer. Shut up. Yep. You have sure such was. a good voice. I totally well, could see that. You. Okay. I was a sports announcer. Uh, I grew up in a little town called Messina, New York. It's way up high in northern New York, 12,000 people. Oof. And uh, a little tiny radio station, which still exists, WYBG, in Messina, New York. And I used to go in there early in the morning, like 5 a.m. And this is when we had tapes, right? and pre-record the sports from the previous night. And um, I would have to edit it myself and put it together. And I had, you know, 15-second time slot, a 30-second time slot, and a two-minute time slot. And they would play these sports updates through the course of the morning. And so I would record this, and it was pretty much every morning. And it was on the weekends, and, and I got paid for that. It was great. I loved it. Can you do this station's like signal call out for us? Or is yeah, that okay? Yeah. So my tag at the end of each thing was that's sports. I'm LJ Waddell on 1050 WYBG, the Seaway Valley's leader. Oh, you have such a good radio voice. That is so awesome. <laughs> and so you were getting paid to do that. Was it just like high school like, sports in the area or was it all the sports for your it town? Was everything. It was, yeah, it was high school sports. So, um, you know, up there, hockey was a big deal. It was the high, the high school team, the high school that I graduated from was Messina Central High, so it was the Messina Red Raiders. So we broadcast the Messina Red Raiders football games on Friday nights and the Messina Red Raiders hockey games, which was, were, they were kind of all over the place, actually, in the, during the weekdays and on the weekends. And so, yeah, so we did that. I was a color guy. Uh, Rick Offeld was the 
uh, play-by-play, and I was the guy to add the humor and the color on the side for the games. I love that. I Is that something that you may have wanted to go in, if not for your lovely Greek mother pushing you into... Yeah, I you know you always you always think about that. I would you know being on national news as a national broadcaster. I think that would be cool and very great, but never did pursue it. I'm sure the number of lives you have saved, they would all be like, "Yeah, we're super glad he's not a radio <laughs> announcer." Actually, <laughs> okay. How many customer service jobs have you had? Yeah, so you know I mentioned to you earlier that my dad threw me out of the house, and so. Uh, I came to Tennessee and enrolled at the University of Tennessee to complete my college education and took a sales job, a retail sales job at Jarman Shoes. Now, Jarman was kind of a mid-level men's shoe company. They were owned by a company called Genesco out of Nashville. Part of that still exists, the Journeys um, stores that you see and Johnson & Murphy, which was their high-line men's shoe. Uh, they still exist. Jarman has long since gone. But I, to pay for college and to survive as a human being, went in with a reduced schedule at college and worked almost full-time selling men's shoes and then going to school kind of on the side to complete my education. And then stayed in the shoe business, actually jumped over to Stride Ride Shoes when they had retail stores. Oh, you defected. Yeah, for years Okay, uh, as I was going through college. Okay, so that's three jobs. What else? That's probably it. I never did wait tables. I think that's probably it. Okay, but the big, you know, you've been 15 plus years in in a massively customer service heavy job. So we're counting that. So four total, it will give you four. But you've had specialties in, you know, I don't know, gone all around. So I'm, I'm generalizing medicine as one thing. I want to go. So, with uh, when your dad kicked you out, did he cut? He, I know you said he gave you a hundred bucks, put it in your pocket. Was he paying for school prior to that? He was not. Yeah, he was. He was. Oh, yeah, he was. And so when 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 he cut ties, he cut ties. I didn't talk to him for five years. My mom would try to sneak on the phone and call me uh, once every couple of months, and she would do it very quietly oh, because bless. if he found out, he would get mad and and. Uh, I remember one particular Sunday she was talking to me. She got about five minutes in the conversation and I could hear him screaming in the background. And basically the phone just got hung up. So I imagine he just took it out for him and hung it up. Uh, but it was five years before I talked with him again. I mean, that's a, that's a lot. Did you initiate the conversation then when you guys started speaking again? I initiated only to tell him that I had been accepted to medical school. Good for see that's a way to drop a hammer though like cool you cut me off whatever guess what buddy <laughs> I'm gonna be a doctor that's amazing yeah so yeah so he didn't really know what to do with that I bet so <laughs> it was, I think it really caught him off guard so sure okay so you so you work your way through there you start you're getting into school what was your now obviously now being a thoracic something at the Cleveland Clinic which is wildly prestigious. We're going to say that's off the table for the next question. You have to tell me which was your favorite job of all of the jobs, minus obviously the one you currently have. Yeah, that's a really good question. They all had something that I really liked. Um, I love the kids at Stride Ride. Just love the really. Oh, love them. They were fabulous. The parents, not so much sometimes, (laughs) but the kids were great. 
and interact with, interacting with them daily was great. I liked the radio thing. And I, I think I liked it, not actually the, the job of doing it, but like, for example, sitting in the barber's chair and having the barber recognize me. That's lovely. Say, hey, you're the guy on the radio. <laughs> well, maybe that was more ego, but I thought that was great. You know, I get the patient satisfaction and the, and, and the satisfaction from what I do now. So I think they all had some some point. I guess I guess just from an ego standpoint, I really liked the radio thing just because everybody knew who I was. It was such a small town. Yeah, um, I so, you're literally talking yeah. to someone who does that right now. I totally get it. Right. My ego right. flourishes whenever anybody's like, "Hey, listen to your podcast." I'm like, "Cool." I I, yeah. I feel like a millionaire. I'm like, "Sweet, that's the best thing. That's all yeah. I have to hear." Now, of yeah. those jobs, which was your least favorite? Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, I, I think there are times that, that the medical thing is my least favorite, sure. believe it or not. I mean, you just have just these events, right? People die. Um, and and, and as, as much as you try not to internalize that, as much as you try to be professional, there are those few through your career that stick with you. Yeah. That, I don't want to say haunt you, but they really stay and have had some meaning or impact on you personally. And, and you remember that vividly. And that's hard. That's really hard. It's hard to let go of. It's hard to deal with sometimes. And, and that's n not one of my favorites. And I think just kind of the administrative stuff that, that's happened in medicine. I think that when I started practice 15 years ago, I probably spent about 20% of my time on administrative duties, meaning paperwork, charting, filling out forms, things like that. Now it's 40 pushing 50% of my time, which is spent during doing administrative duties, just because of the regulations and the requirements for charting and insurance companies and documentation and legal environment and so on and so forth. So that's not one of my favorites either. If the environment, if when you were in medical school, if it were like it is today, would you have continued and wanted to practice medicine? I think so. I think, you know, it still is a, in telling kids now because we deal with medical students all the time and with residents and people who want to, who want to come into medicine and come into the field, still a great field, still a lot of integrity here. And like any other field, you know, 90 plus percent of the people that do it, do it for the right reasons. You know, you always have those few. Oh, don't you? Um, doing it for everybody. Don't in they? Every yeah. Right? They do. But I think here in medicine, I, I think that that all the intentions and, and everything is good. The, the only thing I caution people about is the cost now of attending medical school and the being able to pay it back during your career and some of these medical colleges now are a hundred thousand dollars plus a year a year um, a year uh, when you account for tuition living expenses books things like that it can approach or exceed one hundred thousand dollars a year so that's an enormous amount of debt coming out of training to deal with over the course of your career it's half a million um, dollars yeah, or could be more, right? Right. That's I. Uh, that just that feels unconscionable to me. I mean, if there there needs to be 
I don't know. Anyway, for the, just going back to what you were saying, when a patient like passes away and it sticks with you, is there a support staff at the various hospitals that you've worked at to where that you can go talk to and be like, Hey, this is like staying in my brain. Not really. Not really. That's one of the issues we're dealing now with COVID too, is, you know, now that we seem to be on the tail end of this and things are opening and sort of going back to whatever this new normal is that we're going to be dealing with. You know, the focus is now becoming on getting volume back in the hospital, right? Getting the numbers, making up for lost revenue. Um, and, and there has to be some accountability here for what we've all been through. Uh, whether that's you as a non-medical person or whether it's me as a physician. You know, we worked through COVID the entire time. We didn't let up at all. And we didn't know in March or April whether the patients had COVID. We didn't have any means to test them. And we, we just plowed through in this environment of fear, conflicting advice from all of the bodies that be, whether that's the CDC, the NIH, the federal government, the medicine, medical professions themselves. And so, you know, We've been all in this situation for so long, but yet are, are we going to really look at this and provide the support that we need to provide for the nursing staff that took care of these patients and were in this situation, the medical assistants, the health professionals? Boy, it's going to be a big onslaught of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and, and we are ill-equipped to deal with this. We don't have the professional staff that we need nor have I heard anybody really addressing this at this point in the medical field. You know, is, is a PowerPoint presentation that you're required to do for CME credit during the year adequate to deal with this? Probably not. Probably not. Probably. It yeah. might take more and than a that, PowerPoint. It might. Right. And, and is some, you know, phone number, referral phone number that you're given as an employee to call if you need help, is that adequate? Or is some group group setting adequate. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I fear that, that um, we don't have the mechanisms in place for this or for, for just routine. Hello. Mental health support. Yeah. Well, a, yeah. a really lovely, brilliant girl whose name I won't say, but uh, that Ashley and I both played soccer with and went to school with, had a full-fledged medical practice of her own and during COVID shut it down, said, I can't, this yeah. is too much. I can't, it's too much with my family. I can't, it, it's too hard. And I was just like, I wonder how many brilliant people the medical profession will lose with because of inadequate mental health support and inadequate support during COVID. I can't, I mean, I'm, I, I don't think that that dust has settled and I will be fascinated to see how affected the industry becomes by that. Cause yeah. it, it, it's not going to come out unscathed. There's no way. No, it isn't. And, and, and there just aren't enough psychiatrists, psychologists or people out there currently to help deal with all of this. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Um, okay. Well, what is the, <laughs> this is, uh, you probably have a good answer for this. What's the weirdest thing you have been asked to do whilst you were on the clock? Uh, I had a patient ask me to write a letter to his wife, asking his wife to have sex with him. What? <laughs> okay. As a medical diagnosis or like, what was the context? Uh, he, you know, he, he had fully recovered from his operation and had complained 
that the relationship with his wife was not so great and that he wanted me to write a letter to tell her that she should have sex with him. And uh, I I probably know the answer to this, but did you write that letter? No, I didn't get the letter. Yeah, I would assume not. Did you just say to him, sorry, I can't force your wife? That's kind of out of my field. I think you guys probably need some marriage therapy yeah bless his heart poor guy you know god bless him he didn't yeah. <laughs> yeah. okay and what's an incident or hey i doubt you've had any but was there ever an incident where someone asked to speak to your manager or speak to someone oh, yeah really oh yeah it, it, that happens pretty frequently frequently there's there's usually some division within the hospital called patient excellence or patient relations or something like that. And it's a, it's an office that's geared to take patient complaints. And, and these things vary from, I mean, just the littlest complaint, like they didn't come in and sweep my room today to, you know, I haven't seen my doctor in two weeks. So, so when they file this, when a patient engages the patient relations division, then they're obligated to, file a report, and then notify the attending physician that something's been logged. And the problem, <laughs> problem I've had with that personally is that that it winds up to be these things that you have no control of. So, for example, a patient had a bowel movement in the bed and hit the call button and nobody responded for 30 minutes. Legitimate complaint. But as the attending physician, yeah, I'm now tagged with that. Or, you know, the, the rapid response team got called for a low blood pressure and one of the nurses was making jokes to another nurse in the corner during this period. Probably legitimate. Probably shouldn't have happened. But then here comes the call to patient relations and I get tagged with this and having to deal with it. So you get hauled down to talk to the patient relations people so they can show you these complaints. Do you ever feel like you're held as a, not only just a physician, but also as just someone in medicine, do you ever feel like you're held to a standard of you can't be human? Yeah, I think so. I, I think you can't make a mistake. Yeah. Um, if you do, you're liable for that, or you potentially could be liable for that. Mm-hmm. And working in the hospital, you know, hospitals now are big business. They're run by people who are business professionals and have MBAs, and uh, their standard is much different than what the physician's standards are. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a little frustrating sometimes when you look around and you say, but wait a minute, I, you know, I have to do X, Y, and Z and be 100% on 100% of the time, yet look across, this, look across the hall over there, what's going on? Yeah, I would be, I just... God bless you and every doctor. I just would be pissed. I would just constantly be pissed. There would be no panacea for me other than screaming just all the time. (laughs) I just can't imagine. Yeah, there are those moments where you're just like, holy smoke. I imagine. Okay. What is the the last straw that got you out of, because I guess you would have moved on to from stride right or something, but like, was there a moment where you were at your wits end with something and you just quit? Not not really. I mean, I think what got me out of the what got me out of the retail business was my acceptance to medical school. You know, there just was no way that I could do that 
and continue to work on the side. It was just too much. I, I'm just not capable of doing that. So that's what got me out of the retail sales business and moving to a new place to go to school. So we could say um, the last straw that got you out of that version of customer service was the pressure from your mother to have a fancy degree. We'll just say that. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> ultimately you could say that. Okay. Um, but you know, I've, I've, I've changed jobs a couple of times and, and each time doing so, it's, it's more not that there was a last straw, but that there was another opportunity where I could take my career and or what I could do kind of to the next level and advance. Well, you are too humble to say this, so I will say it. Uh, Dr. Waddell is wildly, wildly respected in the community and in medicine and is actively actively recruited all over the world to work in various locations. And so that doesn't surprise me whatsoever that you are making advancements in your career after being heavily recruited by various places. And then you ended up in the great state of Ohio. So, you know, nobody's sad about that at a lovely, lovely, very well-respected institution. All right. Enough of stroking your, well, it's true. It's true. Uh, your reputation precedes you. Okay. And your wife hasn't told me that. That's what the internet says. Your wife loves you for other reasons. <laughs> okay. Have you? Oh, yeah, I hope so. yeah, she does. <laughs> she actually doesn't care that you do surgery. She just wants <laughs> hugs. Um, okay. Have you ever told, uh, like, fired a patient or fire? Or just you have? Yep. Okay. Why? Yep. Absolutely. So uh, I operated a young girl who had a condition called thoracic outlet syndrome. It's a condition where there's a uh, 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 number one rib that's impinging on the nerves Ooh. in the arm. Ooh. Sometimes it can impinge on the blood vessels as well and can cause clots and swelling and all kinds of problems with the circulation to one of the arms. So we did that. And then afterwards found out that she was a card-carrying drug abuser. She had a long history of prescription narcotic abuse and illicit substance abuse as well with cocaine and heroin and all kinds of other bad things. So, of course, postoperatively, it was just a constant barrage for pain medications, whether she was actually using them for her own consumption or selling them or whether she was selling them. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. There's just no way. But and, and this was before the states have the systems that they have now where they track the narcotic prescriptions and you can look up each individual prescription and each individual person and it will tell you how many narcotic prescriptions they've got. It tells you who wrote them, if she's doctor shopping and getting them from, you know, a dozen different doctors, how frequently they're prescribed. Um, so there's been a major effort to kind of clamp down on this, but that wasn't in existence when I operated on her. So I, she went to such a such lengths as to report me to the hospital for things that were never, never true. She actually fabricated a number of things and a number of false accusations that of course then mobilized the hospital into a defensive posture and had to investigate all of this stuff. And of course it turned out to be complete nonsense, but she, she was really a, a difficult to deal with. Her husband as well. They had two small children, Ugh. and they were very young. They were in their early twenties. And so this was someone that we actually did have to dismiss from the practice because it just got to be to the point where you know even trying to 
reason or de-escalate with these folks was impossible. It, it actually got to the point where he lunged at my wife Ooh. during a clinic visit with all kinds of profanity. The security folks were there. I mean, it was like four of these guys from security who were the size of gorillas. I mean, they were monstrous guys, literally picking this guy up and carrying him out of the clinic building. Uh, it was just an unbelievable, it was like something you'd see in a movie. It was really unbelievable. And that could put your medical like license in jeopardy if someone really wanted yeah. to pursue that. Yeah, yeah, sure they could because, you know, all of these false reports sure. have to be investigated. Uh, there are multiple levels with regards to the state and the federal government for licensing and, and policing all of this that could have come into play. They didn't, it didn't get beyond the hospital level. But, but my goodness gracious, yeah, she was one that we fired. How did it, is there like a legal process where you have to send them paperwork yeah. and you have to? Yeah, they ha you, yeah, so you're required to send a certified letter. They have to, you know, sign for it to say that they received it. So you have proof. And then you have to provide care for 30 days after receipt of the letter in order to allow the patient Time. to find alternative care, right? That you can't just drop them because that would be abandonment. So you can't do that. You have to allow them time to find another doctor. But in that 30-day window, the damage that they could do is still massive. So do they... Could be. So is there, you know, are the various entities alerted, hey, we are cutting ties with this person, and if they draw some sort of claim during this time, please be advised they're an addict and there's... Yeah, other than other than within the hospital system and the electronic medical record and the charting, which you know it's it's documented within the hospital itself. Um, so anybody from the hospital accessing the patient's chart will see the caution, the warnings associated with the patient when they open the chart. But other than that, there's there's no other real way to report that. Uh, now there have been pharmacies that have been put on alert in these kind of situations that they frequent to say, look, this is someone who either is, you know, abusing narcotic prescribed pain medications and, you know, please check the the national or the, the state yeah, registry where you prescribe or dispense any medications. Uh, but there's really nothing else you can do. Did she come back during that 30 day period to get care? No, a lot of text messages and a lot of, <laughs> phone calls wow. about all of it, but uh, she never came back in person. And have you seen an uptick of that because of the n narcotic and opioid epidemic that we are experiencing now? Have you as a physician seen more of this problematic behavior? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's um, amazing. Actually, you know, in our field, we see people get a condition called endocarditis, which is an infection oh, of the heart. Of the heart right. Ugh. As a result of injecting yeah. substances Ugh. and not using sterile technique or clean needles. And so. And that'll know, kill you pretty quickly, won't it? I mean, that's a pretty fast. Well, yes, it will. Yeah. Absolutely, it will. And, you know, not only do they get infection of the heart, they get infection of the lungs, lungs they can yeah. get infection in any of the organs if an abscess sets up. Jeez. And so these folks come in sick, 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 sick. And usually what will happen is they are given the opportunity to rehab, uh, to commit to a rehab program and stay with the program. And, and then they're treated appropriately by standard. But if they are repeat offenders, 
then there are mechanisms in place to say you, you you're not playing by the rules. We cannot continue to perform heart surgery on you when you when you won't take some ownership or responsibility for this. God, that would be so difficult. Any uh, any of you? I mean, we see a lot of it. It's it's really it's really uh, amazing at how much of this we see, and not only in that situation, but in the clinic visits as well as patients are asking for narcotics. And, um, I've had a prescription pad stolen from me. And then uh, the pharmacist called me and said that the patient had written the prescription one pound of morphine. <laughs> oh, bless. <laughs> bless. And you I were- wanted to make sure that I actually didn't prescribe that and sign that prescription. And I said, no, I didn't. Do that. Yeah, you're like, I, I didn't know it actually came in pounds, weirdly. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, and actually, it's spelled a different way. Yeah, too, there's so. an R, but it's uh, fine. <laughs> yeah, there's an R in there. Um, Bless. But yeah. <laughs> this tragedy. Oh. Okay. Well, how many bodily fluids? And uh, you you might not be able to top Dr. Nick on this because he's had them all except for one. How many bodily fluids have been on your person whilst you were on the clock? Everything. Okay. You name it. Okay. Sputum, uh, secretions from the eye, saliva from the mouth, um, nasal secretions, blood, lymph fluid from lymph nodes and lymph glands, stomach fluid, feces, urine, Thankless uh, job. pancreatic secretions, bile, uh, you name it. Any bodily fluid that the body produces, I've had. You've had on your body. Well, Dr. Nick, yeah. you've been dethroned. So I hope you're listening. Uh, Dr. Waddell <laughs> just took yeah. your place. <laughs> uh, actually, the only thing I don't think I've had is cerebrospinal fluid on me. So I don't think I've had anything from the brain or the spinal cord. Okay. Have you been barfed on? Yep. Ooh, like projectile barfed on? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Like down. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Did you see no. it coming? No. Oh, gross. Was your mouth no. open? Oh, no. It was. It hit me from the chest down. And so, yeah, no, it, it didn't hit me in the face. So gross. Uh, was that before an operation or was that just a regular patient you were seeing? No, it was just walking around in the, in the hallway, seeing patients on my own. Oh, that's worse. You were super not expecting it. Oh, that's no. a drive-by <laughs> shooting right there. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> that's not the worst. The worst is sputum. I, I think really? the worst is this sticky green stuff that people cough up. That's the worst. I think I would get sick. Have you ever gotten sick because of seeing stuff like that? No, I did get a little queasy draining a lung abscess once. Oh, uh, okay, green. okay, it was, okay. It was green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're good, Dr. Waddell. Nope, I'm interrupting and talking over you. And nope, I don't. Yeah. Nope, nope, nope. Can't hear it. I will get sick yeah. everywhere. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you tip? When you go out? I do. What's your, how much? Absolutely. Minimum of 20. That's nice. Percent. And more if the service is good. I mean, these folks are working hard, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what they do. They don't get paid a lot of money. And uh, and I appreciate them taking care of us. So my low end is 20% if it's kind of bad service. And and better if it's really great service. It's one time I've never tipped. So I was just about to ask. Uh, okay. Yeah. We got into a restaurant. It was a local place. And... And basically, we're abandoned. I mean, we just sat there. It took about an hour to even get the first drink. And, and then another 30 minutes. But I mean, we literally sat there about an hour and a half before she came by to even ask us about ordering any kind of an appetizer that evening. And and there were about three people in the place. I was just about to say, and was it was four, she slammed? No. Yeah, no. And four servers, you could see them standing in the little area where they kind of hang out. Nope. And it was just, holy smokes, what's going on? 
Yeah, that would have frustrated me. If it, it, did you do you feel like like what would con- constitute thirty percent or more twenty more than twenty percent type of service? Like, what's a really good experience at a table? Oh, I think it's what everybody expects, right? That you're, you come in and you're greeted appropriately, and they're they're nice, and they introduce themselves, and they're timely, so they check on you. Your water glasses are full, your drinks are replenished, and I know they don't have a lot of say over the timing of the kitchen in terms of putting the orders in so you have a nice experience where you have time to talk, you don't feel rushed, you don't have your salad and your entree come out at the same, same time. time. Right? Coffee's hot when you get your dessert um, and it's timed enough that you're not, you know, you're not rushed or uh, that it's a good experience. By the same token, if you're at a chain restaurant and it takes three and a half hours to eat, that's a little bit long. Yeah. I mean, I think just kind of feeling like, yeah, they're here and, and, and everybody was kind of on point. Yeah. You've uh, so reasonable expectations is what you have just articulated. Yeah. Were you ever fired from a customer service job? Nope. Have you ever been fired from any job? Nope. Uh, all right. Not yet. Oh, God, bless. Knock wood, but that's <laughs> never going to happen. Okay. Can you give me an example of, and you don't have to get specific. I don't want to put you in a weird position, but the worst patient, either an archetype of who is a bad patient. You've listed some pretty, someone coming, getting in Ashley's face is pretty, and, and yours is pretty terrible. But like, do you have another worst patient you can think of that you're like, oh, I never want to see, or an archetype of like what a bad patient looks like for you? Wow. Um, that's a really tough question because when we see people as physicians, we're not really seeing that person. That's right. I mean, when you come in to see a physician, you're there because you have to be there, not because yeah. you had two hours on a Wednesday afternoon and nothing to do. So you just <laughs> talk to your doctor, right? That's not what the case is at all. So, you know, you have to be respectful of the fact that most of the time, it's an uncomfortable position for that person to be in. They're either hurting, there's anxiety, there's fear. Um, there's all of these things that are overlying what that real person is. So you usually, after talking to them just a few minutes, can begin to unwrap those layers and peel them back to find out who's really underneath that and who you're really talking to. And so I it's, it's not, there isn't really one particular kind of person that walks through the door that you're just like, oh God, what am I going to do with this guy or this girl or this person? So I don't know that there's an archetype. I think the people who are disingenuine that are there for ulterior motives like drug seeking are frustrating. And, you know, you just kind of feel like, gosh darn, you know, uh, and this is not real and, and I could really be spending time helping somebody that really needs, needs the help. That would be frustrating. Okay. Well, now we're going to move on to the good stuff. We hoped you all saved room for dessert. What is the nicest thing a customer or a patient has done for you whilst you were working? Yeah, that's a really good question too. And they, they come in so many different ways. You know, patients will bring gifts to you and that's always awkward about taking a gift from a patient. Some of them are sometimes extravagant. You know, it's an awkward situation for me personally if a patient brings a gift, especially if it's something that's a little more extravagant, like hundreds of dollars in value. That's, I I don't know how to accept that. I don't know how to take that. And you don't want to offend the patient and the good intentions that they 
that they're putting forth in gratitude. So uh, there's that. There are cards. And I think uh, those are the ones that I really like the most is when someone takes just a few minutes to write a card and mail it to me. That takes effort. That's such a lost art to write a letter these days. Agreed. And, you know, I would ask you, when's the last time you, you sat down and wrote a letter? Me? Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. I write. I was raised in a household of thank you notes. So I write thank you notes or birthday cards and all that stuff all the time. But like a letter of how my day went, yeah. I, could, I couldn't tell you. Right. I mean, how long has it been? And, and I have patients who do that, that will send me a letter to say, this is what happened in the year. That's really sweet. And you, you'll yeah. read them and you like hearing sure. them. Every word. Oh, bless. Most of them I save and most of the cards I save just as a kind of reminder to say, look, you know, you're doing a good thing. Keep going. And is that because those are people whose lives you've saved who have said, look, because you saved my life, I was, oh, that makes me want to cry. Yeah, most of them. <laughs> oh, that's so lovely. I'm tearing up. Okay. Ugh. Okay. Well, that's lovely. I need to remember to do that. Hopefully I never, I never have to have a doctor save my life, but if that is the case again. All right. Um, right on letter, I appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Noted. Dr. Nick said the same thing. He loves the cards and the letters. So that seems to be a doctor thing. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Can you give us an archetype or an example of a specific like best patient or top to bottom of fantastic experience besides sending you a letter about the life that you gave them. Yeah. Yeah. The best patients are the patients who are actively engaged in their care and their mm, recovery. I could see that. You know, the people who, who really, you know, grab a hold of this and either change their lives, stop smoking, exercising, diet, all the things that you, we all should be doing without even being told to do it or thinking about it. But the people who really, really are invested, those are the people that do the best. Mm. You know, there's an old expression, remember uh, Y2K, right? Everybody's worried that the world was going to blow up because the computers couldn't count past 1999. And the expression at that time was garbage in, garbage out, right? Garbage into the computer, computer spits out garbage back. Same thing in healthcare and patients. So Mm. great healthy patient in, great healthy patient out. So my favorite patients are the ones who, exercise, who diet, who, you know, they hold their hands of their wife in the clinic appointments. Oh. Uh, you know, those are the best people. And and they're my favorite archetype of patients to take care of. Yeah. Oh, I think that is the cutest visual of just holding their hands. Oh, I can't deal. Okay. Well, what is the best lesson you have personally learned from doing the work that you do? Yeah. Hard for me to do it without being emotional too. Uh, but every day is a gift. Mm. Um, there, there, there just are no guarantees about anything. Mm. Your life can change in one second. So for me, what I've learned is really enjoy the time that you have with the people that you spend it with. I love that. Well, what is one piece of advice you would give to patients or customers who interact with doctors or customer service workers? Remember that you're dealing with another human being. And remember that you're dealing with people who aren't at their best. You know, it's not like we all run around at the top of our game 24-7. I do. No. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you do. Well, the two of us do. Yeah, we do. But, but you no know, one the else rest does. of the world. Right, right, no. right, right. You know, I mean, just just. You know, we have no idea what's going on in that server's life, sure. what's going on with that barista, what's going on with the guy who parked your car. Lots, probably. 
like like all of us. Nobody has an idyllic life. Not even Bill Gates these days. Hello. Um, <laughs> That's real. <laughs> so, so, you know, just remember that when you, you know, just take a breath and step back from the situation before you start screaming at some poor server because they didn't get the order exactly right. Maybe it's not their fault. Maybe the kitchen messed it up. Maybe they got the ticket backwards. Maybe they, you know, just kind of take a breath and give somebody a break and say, it's going to be okay. Because it's normally, normally it's not going to change the course of your life. Okay. And are you a doctor that likes hugs from patients? Like if a patient runs I in? I do. Yeah, I do. You know, that's been such an odd thing is, you know, when you walk into a clinic room or into a, a patient's room now, with six feet distancing masks, shields, I, you know, we're all bank robbers walking around these days. Right. It's just been such a hard way to interact. And, and despite that, you know, we still get the hugs and the handshakes and all that kind of stuff. And we just let it go. It's like, you know what? It doesn't matter. Yeah. And do you think that people should get vaccinated? I do. Mm. No question about it. No question about it. Vaccine yeah. works. You know, if, if we've been successful anywhere in COVID-19, it's the vaccine. We failed on so many different fronts in dealing with this in terms of education, the politics involved with it, the distribution mechanisms. We just have done such a terrible job with COVID-19, except for the vaccine. Hmm. That's a true success. And I think paves the way for the future in how we deal with our next pandemic, in how we deal with our next virus outbreak, bacterial outbreak. We now have this template and this roadmap in the development of this vaccine to expedite the development of future vaccines for other ailments. So I would certainly recommend that people get that. And when you say next pandemic, because I got that, do you think it's inevitable? Absolutely. That's what most people are saying. Okay. Well, how can people get in touch with you? What is the best way to become one of your new patients? I assume calling your office. And I will not be forwarding any weird medical questions to you because I already do that with Dr. Nicholas because he takes the bullet on that. So sorry, Dr. Nick, you're taking all those bullets. I will not forward Dr. Waddell any of your weird questions. But if people want to get in touch with you for a consult, if they're in Ohio or elsewhere, what's the best route? So my specialty is uh, general thoracic surgery. And if that is something that you need assistance with, I'm more than happy to see you anytime. You know, if you have a broken ankle, I'm probably not the right doctor. You're not the guy. <laughs> not the guy. But the best way is through my office. And that's a 440-333-8600. 440-333-8600? That's right. Okay. That is how you get to Dr. Waddell. I assume that's not directly to you, and but maybe through your channels, but people can, right. they'll get to you. Well, folks, we're going to drop your checks now. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help us out here at Service From Hell, we'd love to have you subscribe, rate, and or review the show wherever you listen. It will help us reach more people that need to be schooled on the art of being kind and will be catharsis for those of us still working in the industry. If you want to get in touch with us directly here at Service From Hell, send us your receipts at servicefromhellpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Remember, if you can't afford a tip, you can't afford to go out. So don't be garbage and be good to people. It's easier that way. And also send your doctors cards and give them hugs when hugs are appropriate again because it means a lot. This is we, we keep hearing that from doctors. So send cards, send Christmas cards, send pictures of your babies. 
They apparently love it. So thank you for being on, Dr. Waddell. This was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us. Good night. I hope it helps when you edit all this down and get it condensed to a reasonable length. I hope it helps. Oh, I'm not. Most of everything you said is staying in. So this is going to be you're looking. This is the length. I was impressed with everything you said. So (laughs) no one's going to listen this long, Kate. Nobody wants to hear us talk. Oh, they do, though. They do. They love the episodes with doctors. And you'd be surprised how many emails I get of people being like, hey, I have this weird scab. Can you? Yeah. Can you forward this on? And I'm like, <laughs> I, I cannot, actually. That's why I threw in the question with you of like, how many times do people, they find out you're a doctor and then they're like, oh, I have this thing growing on my armpit. Can you look at it? Like, every, every time. Really? Every, yeah, every time.